are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Well, thanks very much, Buster. Um, it's a real privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. I love the Word of God, and uh, I love this opportunity to share it with you. Would you uh, turn with me to, uh, or I guess maybe you can look at, I don't know if you got that up on the screen, but you can turn it, turn or just listen if you'd like to, to uh, Exodus 24, uh, 1 through 11. That's where we'll start today. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. These are the Ten Commandments that he's read to them. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for cleanness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, yeah, it's Thanksgiving, um, Thanksgiving week. I love Thanksgiving because it sits between the... the uh, the two holidays that we're told are the ones that Americans spend the most money on, uh, Halloween and Christmas time. And somehow, this holiday manages to escape a lot of the um, consumerism that you see. You don't see the shelves full, filled with uh, Thanksgiving stuff. You do see pumpkins in the grocery stores and stuff like that, but you don't see anything like the Halloween costumes that start in like August <laughs> or, the, or, the, or the Christmas stuff that started, what? Um, as soon as, well, actually before Halloween was done, it seems like it gets earlier every year. This holiday just kind of sits in between those two, it's kind of unassuming, um, because it's hard, isn't it, to, uh, to exploit a holiday that's devoted to thanksgiving, to giving thanks. And as, uh, as Ben said just a little bit ago, not only we who, who are believers who believe in God give uh, thanks on this day, even atheists give thanks for something or observe the day somehow. I'm not sure what they give thanks for. I think a lot of times they give thanks to each other. 
Um, but, uh, but in any case, um, yeah, people stop and think about their blessings, and that's, that's a wonderful thing, I think. Well, the feasting that we're going to do um, here is really more than just eating. Um, it's more than just grazing, right? It's, we sit down at the table, we prepare a meal, we, take, we pull out all the stops, we do all of these things to get ready for Thanksgiving that we don't do ordinarily because it's not an ordinary day. It's a day where we're all coming together um, to celebrate our blessings, but also to celebrate each other. We sit around the table, in the conversation that we have with one another, we remind ourselves who we are. If you're going to family, um, you're, you're reconnecting with family, and you're reminding yourselves of those connections with them and the history you've had together. Um, sometimes you realize that, uh, that you've become a little different <laughs> than some of your family members, and that oftentimes leads to some tension. Nevertheless, there's a lot you share in common, and you're celebrating that together. Um, it's a setting where we remind each other who we are. It's a setting where we, um, sometimes it's a setting where we become who, who we were meant to be. Um, and whatever else it is to be with one another. Well, feasting in the Bible has all of these features. They're often formalized. There are wonderful things that happen at feasts. Um, you remember Abraham and Sarah learned that they were going to have a baby, the promised baby, at a feast. Um, Zacchaeus became a follower of Jesus at a feast. Um, there was a wedding feast in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. It was a feast where he turned that water into wine. And terrible things sometimes happen at feasts, too. Um, there was the, uh, actually just a, few, just a few passages later here in Exodus, you find that the people um, turned away from God right after they said they were going to uh, obey everything that he said. They turned away from him and had a feast. Um, but it was not a feast. It was a feast to a golden calf. And uh, John the Baptist, you remember, was beheaded at a feast. Um, and so, so good things can happen, bad things can happen. Um, the, we we want to look at a little bit here what, what it takes to do the good things, what it takes for a feast to be good. Um, feasting is everywhere in the Bible. In, in fact, um, when you look at the life of Israel after the Exodus, you might be forgiven for thinking that they feasted all the time. Um, there were five annual feasts on the calendar originally. When you read Exodus or, and Leviticus, you see there's five feasts. And then eventually a couple of others were added um, at very significant points in Israel's history so that, the, so that by, um, by the time of Jesus, there were seven annual feasts. And these feasts really framed the life of Israel, and there were, uh, they, they, were, they were feasts where they did come together, they remembered good things that God had done for them, and they celebrated God and the things that he'd done. They ate a lot of those feasts, too, by the way. Some of them, they ate a whole bowl. <laughs> they ate a lot of food at those feasts. Um, the weekly Sabbath is called a feast, and if you've ever gone to an observant Jews, Jewish household on Sabbath day, you see that they actually do celebrate a feast along with, along with a number of prayers that are designed to do just what we talked about here, remind themselves who they are as the covenant people of God and welcome God's presence uh, into their supper and into their lives. 
So the weekly Sabbath is called a feast, and then they also had new moon feasts. So every month they had a feast, a formal feast. Well, all of them focused on remembering, on celebrating, and cementing Israel's identity as the people of God, whom he'd redeemed from slavery and put into covenant relationship with him. And they focused on giving him thanks for these things. Israel's feasts were a rehearsal of a principle best explained by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity when he says, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy our desire for God, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, we must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy or echo or mirage. The feasts of Israel are like that. They point to a future reality. They point to a present reality that God is with them, that God was with them, a past reality that God had delivered them. The feast at Cana, at Jesus' feast, points unmistakably for anyone who understands the culture to the final feast, to the great feast in the, when the kingdom of God is actually realized and comes to earth. I want to use the remainder of our time. We're going to take a scoot through the, through the, through the whole Bible from, from Exodus through. Um, and I want to spend this time focusing or exploring um, our feasting through the lens of Scripture uh, by focusing on just a, just a few of the Bible's most significant feasts. We can't begin to cover everything the Bible has to say about feasting, um, but one thing I do hope we can draw from our brief exploration is the deep truth that God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. And feasting is an important setting for practicing that truth. So we can glorify God in our feasting by remembering him as our deliverer and provider, by celebrating and thanking him for making us his people and blessing us as his people, and by practicing his presence at our tables as a manual, God with us. So let's go back to Exodus 1 to 11 for just a minute and remind ourselves of what's going on here. This is a very significant feast, probably one of the, probably the most important feast in the life of Israel altogether. Uh, you'll remember the setting. Israel was, uh, was, uh, was led by God out of Egypt, and they went to Sinai, and the scene at Sinai was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. God came down. Uh, Sheree was doing a study um, on the glory of God this past week, and, uh, the, and the glory of God is actually, if you, if you look at, if you'd study that word, it means weight, it means heaviness. It's actually uh, the word for liver as well as your kavod. It's your heavy organ. But uh, God's weight, God's heaviness, is such that it shakes everything when he comes down, when he comes and settles in. Uh, the other day, they cut, I, I had a, some trees, I had a, some branches removed from some trees, and one was right outside my study window. And when they cut that, it didn't look that big from 30 feet down, but uh, when that thing fell and hit the street outside my house, outside my window, the house shook. So this is kind of what's happening here. God is coming down, and everything is shaking. Lightning's flashing, thunder, darkness, 
settling down, and it's a terrifying scene. In fact, the people of Israel say, don't, don't, can, can we just not hear God anymore? Could, Moses, could you just go, could you, could you just go for us and, uh, and, and listen to God because they found it terrifying? And he said, even if a creature comes onto the mountain, it's going to be stoned. If a, if a cow strays off onto the mountain, it'll be stoned. But here, um, here not only are they, not only are some of them, um, are, are they sitting here and listening to these words of God, seeing this in the background, but at this particular point, they're, they're preparing. Now, what's going on here? What's going on? In fact, uh, scholars have looked at the structure of the, of the Ten Commandments. Um, when, remember, when, it, when the Ten Commandments start, it says, it, uh, starts, it says, I am the Lord who led you out of the land of Egypt, and then goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. That is in a form of a treaty from a great king to subordinate kings. Whenever they would form a treaty like that between a great king and subordinate kings, that's the form it would take. I am so-and-so, I did such-and-such for you, now you do such-and-such in response to this, and we'll enter into a covenant. And they always sealed those covenants with a feast. And so here we are. Um, if you just look at the if you just look at 10 and 11, they are really starting with verses 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet a pavement of sapphire and they ate and they drank. And it says here in 11, he did not lay the Lord, that is, did not lay his hand on them. Um, what's that mean? It means they got to go up on the mountain, and they didn't die. So, so here they are, and they didn't die. In fact, God's laying out a feast for them. They're eating here. God wants to be with them. God wants to be with them. He brought them out of Egypt because he wants to be with them. In fact, this is the whole point, this particular thing. You remember when, when Moses went to Pharaoh, God told Moses, uh, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may go into the wilderness and worship me. So he let them go, finally, uh, and they went out and worshiped him. And this is it, right here. This is it. This is where they're worshiping. Um, so this is the culmination, and it was made possible by the deliverance from Egypt. And so we can look at the granddaddy of all feasts. We can look at um, Passover as an example of what God did and uh, as a foundation for what's happening here, or, the, or really the occasion for what's happening here at this particular feast in Exodus. So when you, you'll recall the Passover, the Passover, obviously everybody remembers the Passover. <laughs> um, the Passover com, um, it happens on the night when the final plague of Egypt takes place. Nine plagues have already passed. Here comes the tenth one, and God tells Pharaoh, all the firstborn houses, uh, or all, sorry, all the firstborn children in every house in Egypt will die. The firstborn of your cattle is going to die, um, and so you, uh, and and after that, you're going to recognize that I'm the God of Israel, and you're going to let you, let my people go. So he made a provision for Israel um, that this would not happen to them, but the way he did it was he said, you're going, you Israelites, you're going to choose a lamb 
that is um, spotless, that is big enough for everyone in the household or small enough for everyone in the household to eat the whole thing before morning. Then you're going to slaughter that lamb at sunset and you're going to spread the blood of that lamb. You're going to drain the blood and you're going to spread it on your doorposts and on the sides of your doors so that the destroyer that comes through to, to uh, kill the firstborn of Egypt will pass over your houses. So that's what they did that first, that first night, that first Passover. They killed that in obedience to the Lord's uh, word. The Lord protected them. They ate the whole thing. They ate the whole thing along with side dishes of, of herbs. And, uh, and that first Passover, they were doing that. They were eating all that stuff, uh, all that food. Not just to commemorate, but they were getting ready for the next day. They were bulking up. Um, because they had a long journey the next day, and they had to be ready. Um, when I was, uh, oh, about six years ago, I hiked the Grand Canyon, and when I got down to the bottom of the canyon, um, the guy who'd kind of organized the hike for us had made reservations at Phantom Ranch, and they feed you this stew, this really rich, thick stew. I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 calories, I reckon it must be. A lot of food. So they, uh, so so we ate it, and a guy sitting at our table said, "You be sure and eat the whole thing, cause you're gonna need it all." And that night we actually hiked out, and hiked up the Devil's Corkscrew, and we were hungry <laughs> the next morning. We'd burned up all those calories. Um, that's what was going on here. They were bulking up, not just eating the meal for ceremonial purposes, but they were bulking up. And then every Passover after that. They ate the whole thing again. Uh, every, every, uh, every household ate, and, and still to this day, every household at Passover eats, um, eats the equivalent, or, um, well, eats a lot of food. <laughs> I'm not sure if they observe it exactly the way they did, but they eat a lot of food. Um, and, uh, and it's every subsequent Passover what they're trying to, what they are doing, what they're commanded to do, and what they practice in, this, in the various things that go on there is to remember that God is delivered, that is, is their deliverer. He had acted on their behalf with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm to deliver them from slavery. He reminded them that he had made them his people. He was fulfilling the promise he made in Exodus 6, 7 to 8 to make them his people, to be their God and to be with them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And they gave him thanks for that. They remembered that God was with them because of the sacrifice of a perfect lamb and the blood on their doorposts, marking them as his. So the Passover formed the basis of every other Israelite feast, or the foundation of every other Israelite feast. All of them, in fact, uh, the five that were originally instituted, all of them remembered in some ways the, their deliverance and their wilderness wanderings. They celebrated his uh, ongoing presence with them. They celebrated every year um, who, that he had delivered them, who God was, who they were as his people, and that he was present with them. Every feast does it in one way or another. You can read back through them, and you can see that every one of them does that. And they framed the life of Israel so that when Jesus came, these feasts 
framed the ministry of Jesus. When you look at each of the Gospels, what you see is a structure of Jesus going up to feasts and then or going up. He, he actually went south. <laughs> we usually think of up north, but he went up south because he was going up in elevation as well as he went up to, to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts and then back to Galilee so that the feasts actually marked his marked both the um, both both the framework for his ministry and also many of the most significant uh, elements of his revealing himself as the Son of God uh, came about during those feasts as well. And Passover, of course, itself uh, became transformed into the Lord's Supper on the night he was betrayed. I think it's worth our looking at Luke. 22, 14 to, um, to 20, um, just briefly to remind ourselves of this. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and as he said to them, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it's the Passover that he celebrates here, but he's celebrating this, offering this as the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. He's taking the place of the Passover, and it can, it, it's unmistakable here, even though you, Luke doesn't use that specific language, John does. The fact that the disciples are eating the bread and drinking the wine, eating these elements that are Passover elements, are now taken to symbolize eating Christ's uh, body and drinking Christ's blood uh, symbolically, um, or depending upon the life of Christ is what we're doing, is what we all, what we do. Um, that, that, is, uh, that, that is what's going on here. Passover is being transformed. The reality, the fulfillment of the promise of Passover is found here. We, this story is so familiar to us that uh, we sometimes forget just how significant it is, but I'll tell you, the writer of Hebrews didn't. Listen to Hebrews 12. Listen to what Hebrews, what the book of, or the author of Hebrews says is going on here. Uh, Hebrews 12:18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words have made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is Sinai. This is Sinai. This is where they were. This is, this is what we read at the beginning of this. Um, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of, righteous, of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. What's going on in that room that morning could have shaken earth and heaven. And in fact, a couple hours, uh, just a few hours later, it did. When Jesus died and said, it is finished, you remember there was an earthquake and the veil of the temple was written, was rended, was ripped apart from top to bottom. That's what happened here. God came down and the, and the fulfillment of all those promises took place there. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, <laughs> a feast, you say. Yeah, I mean, this one, this one may seem so special, so unique, that, that uh, what relation does it have to any other kind of feasting? Well, the New Testament really didn't see it that way. The people of the New Testament actually took, those, took just regular feasting in the Lord's Supper and celebrated the two of them together. Um, Acts 2 says they were, uh, they were from house to house breaking bread. The, and they talked about love feasts. Several of the, in fact, most, um, well, several times in the, in the epistles, um, in the New Testament writings, they talk about love feasts that various churches would have. So they connected those two things and celebrated just regular feasting, just a weekly feast with the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper then would culminate it and uh, 1 Corinthians 11 actually reminds us that uh, regular feasting actually does affect how we celebrate, how we experience the Lord's Supper, and our feasting should reflect God's character and glorify him even there. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, there was a long discussion of um, eating meat offered to idols, and at the end of that chapter, Paul says this. He says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And 1 Corinthians 11 says, hey, you've you got to pay attention to who's, who's there and how you're treating them. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 21 to 22 say this. Um, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that, that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here he's saying the Lord's Supper actually is affected by the feasting that they were doing just before it. And, and if a person comes to the Lord's Supper and, uh, full and actually drunk, um, the problem is the Maybe part of the problem is they're drunk, but the big problem is that they're neglecting the brother who doesn't have anything. Someone's going away hungry from that feast, and they're also humiliating that person. And so this is really, this is the original context when it says eating the, eating the body and blood of the Lord unworthily, this is where it's happening. If you're treating your brother poorly, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're neglecting the poor, um, then, then you're not celebrating the supper well, and your, and your regular feasting should, should, characterize, um, should be characterized by that sort of thing as well. 
Exercising hospitality in our feasts, by contrast, and sharing with those who don't have enough make our feasts look more like what Jesus did for us. They make it look, they make it look like he gave freely, and we bear witness to that when we give freely as well. Some people do this, you know, especially they'll take Thanksgiving, and you'll see, you'll see opportunities to serve, say, in a soup kitchen. Um, some people invite needy neighbors. Uh, we often, uh, we used to, uh, we used to, to have a, a, a lot of international students when we were at Central Michigan University, uh, where I was before, and every, every year we'd invite them for Thanksgiving and also Christmas. We'd try to invite them in. A lot of them needed food, and, and they also just needed company. Um, a lot of them are alone. That's a great way, actually, if you, if you know how to do it, if you want to host somebody um, this Thanksgiving. Hosting international students is a, is, is a real ministry to them. Um, well, the Lord's Supper also anticipates a day when he'll be with us and us with him forever. We remember the Lord's death until he comes, and Jesus tells his disciples he won't drink of the fruit of the vine until, it, until the kingdom of God comes, and we find that then in Revelation 19. So turn with me to, actually, I got two more. <laughs> um, and this one, uh, in Revelation 19.6, 19.6-9, this is what it says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, unlike the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous, righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So at the end, at the end of days, when Jesus returns, uh, we have a feast to look forward to. Listen to what Isaiah, how Isaiah describes this feast. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. I like the way this is phrased. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This is the Lamb's Feast. The basis of this feast is the redemptive sacrifice of the Lamb. His people are the bride of Christ here. And Jesus is with us. Here, Jesus is with us as our husband. He wants to be with us so closely, that it's so, so much, that it's compared to a husband awaiting his bride or husband welcoming his bride. So the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise takes place at a feast, sitting down at the table, sharing a meal, of rich food and well-aged wine, and these things celebrate Jesus as our Lamb of God, as our Deliverer, that we are his people, here his bride. Uh, old second chapter of Acts song ended this way, he's coming again on a white horse he'll ride. He'll clothe us and crown us, and he'll make us his bride. 
What a wonderful day that will be. And it celebrates that he is with us here as her husband. He'll be with us forever. Well, <laughs> it's a long way back from the millennial feast to the humble Thanksgiving tables we're going to be sitting around um, in just a couple of days. But I want to suggest we can use even that feast, as C.S. Lewis suggests, to arouse our desire for the real thing of which it is only a copy or echo or mirage. We can think of that feast as we can think of every pleasure as a copy or an echo or a mirage inviting us to look forward and to look upward, uh, to remind ourselves that, the, that there are things that don't pass away. There are things that endure. We can remember God as our deliverer and provider. We can do that in the opening prayer. Um, we can celebrate him for, thanking, uh, for, for, uh, for making us his people and blessing us as his people. Um, at our house, uh, we, Cherie started, I don't remember how long ago you started this, but she, but uh, she started passing around um, notes, little, just little note cards or post-its and pencils. And all throughout the meal, um, we write down things that we're thankful for, and we toss them in a basket. We put this basket right in the middle of the table. And as we're, as we're, um, just as we're eating and we get a minute, um, we, we jot something down and we fill that thing. The international students used to come over, and they would do it too. And then. At the end of the meal, um, we would, after resting a bit, um, we, would, uh, we would then pass that basket around and we'd pull out the little thank you note and we'd read, um, we'd read it aloud, everyone at the table. Sometimes we'd try to guess whose it was. They loved that, but it was an opportunity, just a small token, but an opportunity for us to practice the presence of God at our table. We can also invite him to our tables as Emmanuel, God with us. When, you, when, when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they set a chair for Elijah to remind them that Elijah is coming to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. You could, one thing a person could do, is just set a place for Jesus at the table to remind us that he's here. He wants to be here. All of this reminds us that he wants to be here. He wants to be with us. I, the other, um, oh, about a month ago, I went to, uh, I went to a lecture um, at, uh, at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, the theologian Michael McClymond was there, and he was talking about the atonement, the, the theories of the atonement, and how the foundational theory of the atonement is really that Christ has died for us. Christ has substituted himself for us. But there are a bunch of other theories of the atonement that, it, that, that can be seen as having some truth or, or focusing on some element of that, some facet of that, of that, that grand truth that, God has died, that Christ died for us. Um, he's our victor over sin and death. He's our, he's our ransom. He delivered us from slavery to sin. He's our God whose calls us friends. I no longer call you servants, but friends. He calls us friends. That's amazing that, he call, that God calls us his friends. That's amazing. And McClyman said, in answer to a question, he said, he said, underlying all of this, underlying 
all of the ways that we could unpack what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. He said, is that fundamental, fundamental truth that God wants to be Emmanuel. He wants to be with us. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus wants to be with us. So this Thanksgiving, let's make a point to invite him in. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you together today that you've delivered us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that you've adopted us as yours through the redemption of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your many blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we thank you that you are with us because you want to be, even in something so mundane as a meal. In fact, especially in this one we're about to, so, to share. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.